Hi everybody, it's Toby Miller here. Welcome to the Sailor Anchor. No, number one Aldrich. And I'm here with a very old friend of mine, Richard Higgett. We were just reminiscing about a pub we used to go to, one might say drink at, in Fremantle in Western Australia. Copious amounts of alcohol. But Richard is somebody I've worked out, and I've actually known on and off, I think it's 32 years since we met. And here we are in London, and you are now, for the first time in a long time, back in Australia, Richard. So can you tell us what you're up to, what you're doing? This will pick up what I'm saying. It bloody well should, or, you know, yeah. well, it's all wrong. Well, well as, you, as you know, much, much to my surprise, after 25 years away from Perth, and uh, 19 years away from uh, Australia, I find myself back in Western Australia as a vice chancellor. And That's the president of a university. Right. Yeah. We, the listeners um, come from 50 different countries, yeah. so it's good to yeah. relativise. Yeah. So I'm the president of a university. It's a university where both Toby and I effectively started our careers. I'd just come back from Harvard where I'd been a Fulbright postdoc, took a, a lectureship there and uh, spent five or six very happy years there, uh, got out of one relationship, got into another, uh, went off to another university, uh, but then came back to Europe for 20 years uh, and now find myself back in Perth running a university with absolutely no formal training whatsoever to run a university. And what I consider to be the principal criteria for being the president of a university, and that is that you should never want the job in the first instance. <laughs> because the people who want the jobs uh, basically have closet authoritarian tendencies, and they've been working towards it for years. So I go back to this, what was, when we were there, a very bright, sparky, young, edgy university. Incredibly wonderful, exciting place. With really smart young scholars yeah. who went off and did great things elsewhere. Yeah. And basically, it got captured. It got captured by what I call the corporates who didn't care whether they were uh, making widgets, selling hospital benefit funds, or incidentally, teaching students. <laughs> so, I've come in with what sounds like a a radical agenda, but actually a very conservative agenda. Right, it's, let's make it a university. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's find out what is the core mission of a university. It's research and teaching. Not research, not teaching, research and teaching. Calibrated in a relationship that, that enhances both. And of course, community engagement. Engaging with your local community. And in the context of this university, Murdoch University in Western Australia, which basically is on the same time zone as Singapore, uh, is in the same time zone as 60% of the world's population. Uh, it's on the west coast of, Western, of, of Australia. It's quicker and cheaper to fly to Indonesia than it is to go to Sydney. Uh, and it's easier to be in Singapore than it is to be in Sydney. It's, it's a part of the world that I describe in two ways. One is it's, uh, it's basically a frontier town. It's nearly two million people, uh, but it's basically a resource town. And 10% of Australia's population generate 35% of Australia's wealth, GDP. Uh, and Dallas-on-Swan 
uh, it's the Swan River. Dallas on Swan is the analogy that I give to this this place. It creates new millionaires every week. Uh, it's ostentatious. Uh, it's uh, crass. It's rich, and it's wonderful. Um, but it's always been a boom bust boom yeah. place, hasn't it? Because. The Gregory thesis slash the Netherlands disease has applied to it. And by that we refer to so-called Netherlands disease or Gregory thesis, i.e. when you have lots of when you have abundant natural resources and they are in demand, you don't invest the money you get in sensible things, and so when demand for the resources goes down, you're fucked. Yep. Uh, Norway, to use the technical term that, that, right. that we political economists use. The econometric language is to say you're fucked. So whereas it's the difference between Norway and Britain. Britain squandered the North Sea oil money because it didn't invest it in other things. Norway didn't, it invested it in other things. And so Norway is now laughing all the way to the bank as North Sea oil dries up for Britain and Britain is screwed. That's always been the problem for Western Australia, hasn't it? And when we were there 25 years ago, they thought Gordon Brown like they'd solved it. Now they've got they have they are very lucky. This is an outsider's perspective. You'll correct me as always if I'm wrong, and even will correct me if I'm right. Unlike in the old days when Japan was the booming industrial economy that needed what Western Australia had, now they have two much bigger booming economies, China and, and India, Indonesia. And one, three, Indonesia, uh, yeah, three, and one super booming economy in China, which is going to need the stuff in the ground, maybe for centuries. But what else does it actually have? Well, I mean, the other description, I said I had two descriptions of the place. The second description I have uh, is, and this is, the, this is the optimistic one, this is not the Dallas on Swan one, and it's not what I always describe Western Australia as being rich in spite of itself, not because of itself. <laughs> but there is a more optimistic, optimistic scenario. Uh, and Toby may wish to criticise this, but the optimistic scenario is to think of Western Australia in the early 21st century as California in the early 20th century, uh, given its proximity, its location, where it is in the world, what people in Western Australia call in the zone. In the zone, the time zone that goes from Beijing down through uh, Shanghai, Hong Kong, Singapore to Perth. And the question then is, what does it do? What, is, what does it do to get itself right? What we know is that what the Chinese have worked out, that the Australians haven't yet, is that education is what will drive their sustainability uh, long after they stop that that the bargain that they have with the Americans, where the Americans give the Chinese toxic debt and the Chinese give the Americans toxic toys, when they've stopped doing that, they'll need a knowledge economy. They want to be lazy like Americans and live from intellectual property instead of masses and They do. They want to live just like decadent Westerners do. Let's uh, that. sip on Yeah, cheers. Absolutely. So education is the thing that should sort it out. Western Australia has five universities. One is a, a very prestigious, distinguished, it's, it's sandstone. What, what, in, what in a British context they would call red brick, what in an American context they call Ivy League, what we call sandstone. 
It's a very good university, but it, it like the state, is good in spite of itself, not because of itself. Uh, its location, its richness, all that. That'll get me into trouble with my colleague, the Vice-Chancellor of uh, the University of Western Australia. Murdoch is new, but what Murdoch can do as a university, if it gets it right, it can be a university of the region, not, not a university of Western Australia or Australia. It already has 6,000 students in Singapore, and they pursue their degrees through a process of blended learning. Um, some's online, some's done down in Perth, some's done up in Singapore. Um, you can develop relationships with Indonesians. People forget that Indonesia, with 290 odd million people, uh, is the world's uh, largest uh, Muslim state, but it's also a dramatically developing state, and it's very close. Um, so there's really exciting and innovative things that can be done. At a personal level, I never expected to do something like this. I didn't plan to be a Vice-Chancellor. It's my last job. Why is that important? It's important because I'm not doing this job with an eye on the next job, which what happens with most small universities is that ambitious Vice-Chancellors come in in their 50s looking at the big universities that they want to go to after they've been cautiously uh, good managers for seven or eight years uh, in the small institution. So we're engaged in a project. We're rebooting a university. It's a fantastic project. Uh, and I've managed, fortunately, luckily, uh, I'd like to think a little bit skillfully, to persuade really outstanding people to leave really prestigious universities to come back and be uh, the three other senior members of the university's development team. Uh, we've restructured the university. It's 36 years old. Its 40th birthday is three, three and a half years away. Um, so it's not a long time for a university. And it's rethinking itself. Uh, we've rethought, we've rewritten the curriculum, uh, which has not changed in 30 years, it's just grown. People have added things to it. So we've restructured it, um, we've restructured the, the, the university to make it more efficient. That's not a euphemism for job losses, uh, by the way. We've managed to do this without any redundancies, any sackings, which, unless that sounds dramatic, uh, quite a few Australian universities in the last 18 months, uh, Sydney, ANU, Tasmania, La Trobe, have said, we have to lose 10% of our staff. We don't particularly care where we lose them from, we'll lose them. We haven't done that. Uh, we're small enough in order to get your arms around it uh, as a senior leadership group, to know what's going off, to work out where the strong bits are, to support it, to work out where the weak bits are, and, and pick away at it. Let me jump in with a bit of history, please. in case folks are wondering. Murdoch only barely refers to the dirty digger. Uh, Rupert Murdoch, in that there's a distant family connection. It refers to one of the great scions of Western Australia, Walter Murdoch, who was a wonderful journalist and a very important attorney and intellectual, after whom the university was named. And famously, on his deathbed virtually, he was told that a 
school was going to be named after him, didn't he say it had better be a good one? He did indeed. Worst about effect. He is actually related to Rupert. He's Rupert's right. great uncle. Right, but it's the connection is distant, and I don't think the Dirty Dig has ever given you buggers any money. He's not given us a dollar. Yeah, right. So. Well, I don't want to call him for it. He doesn't pay me anything. Having said that, I would never accept money from him anyway. So. Uh, but I'm a vice chancellor. I would take money from the devil. <laughs> Actually, that's not true. And it's interesting that we're sitting in this rather nice old bar, just a hundred yards from the London School of Economics, where a friend of a friend of mine or a colleague of mine came to a rather sticky end because he accepted large amounts of money from the Saif Gaddafi Foundation. So one of the, one of the things you learn as a vice chancellor is do your diligence on where your money comes well. from. You know, it is also argued that they accepted a PhD written by maybe a dozen wealth-aid research assistants. Let's, let, let's put it this way, in order to prevent the lawyers <laughs> getting onto us. It was written by anyone but Saif Gaddafi, I think is probably the way to, uh, to describe it. Uh, the other thing about Murdoch is that rather like public broadcasting, I always think of it as like a public broadcaster. Think of the BBC, think here in Britain, think of the ABC in Australia, to a lesser extent of the CBC in Canada, the classic Western European style public broadcasting. It's constantly in crisis. So when we were there just a dozen years after it was founded, it was already about to be destroyed. And that was about the second or third time it was about to be destroyed. It was going to be amalgamated, it was not going to be allowed to stand alone. For years, as I understood it, the veterinary school, we were and I think still are only two in Australia, allowed it to continue, three now. There's so Queensland, Murdoch and... Sydney. Sydney. But it's... Its very existence has been under erasure often, hasn't it? So where does it stand right now? Uh, it's, it's okay. I didn't take the job to preside over the merger of Murdoch with another institution. It's financially viable. One of the really interesting things is, unlike many universities, I don't have any debt. Shouldn't say I. I've decided I will never say I as a vice chancellor. <laughs> it's far too royal. And of course, what you should know is that you don't get the sack for being a bad vice chancellor. You get the sack because hubris gets the better of you. You become regal, and you think you think you are untouchable. I'm referring to a northeastern U.S. psychologist who was in a couple of Australian universities. Doesn't have a lot of hair, quite tall. I'm referring to no one. Uh, I'm referring to that. I'm referring to no one in particular, but I'm saying that, 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 that generically, presidents and vice chancellors can survive uh, by being ineffectual, provided that they are not uh, feeding too excessively off the institutional purse, provided that they keep it zippered uh, most of the time, uh, and provided that they don't say anything too fraught and untoward in public. Um, so There's only one category where you're in trouble. <laughs> and that's the last one. What? Saying things untoward in public. I know, I've become... Uh, I, the, I, <laughs> let me tell you what I've learned, Toby. Is, is the first thing I learned as a Vice-Chancellor is there's no such thing as a throwaway line. <laughs> there's no such thing as a raised eyebrow. And the other thing... the Roger Moore, the Australian Vice-Chancellor. Oh, God. <laughs> that would be... <laughs> Act 
acting means doing I know, this. I know, I know. No, well, it's interesting. I mean, one of my DVCs has got... She's got a wonderful, the most... Ex- Deputy Vice-Chancellor. Deputy Vice-Chancellor, yeah. She's got the most expressive face I've ever seen in my life. And her eyebrows go up and down all the time. Uh, it's just part of her expression. But she's had to learn to control it because it's so intimidatory when someone says something and the eyebrows go up. So hermeneutics across the campus get turned on. They, they, <laughs> their internal hermeneutic processes are replaced. She, she doesn't mean anything untoward, but it, but it worries them. The other thing I've learned as a Vice-Chancellor is that you've got very few weapons in your armory. Um, and the two weapons that you have in your armory are flattery and money. And if someone really good comes to you and says, Vice Chancellor, I've been offered a job somewhere, then you obviously start with flattery, but invariably you you have to (laughs) resort to material incentive. But the, the other thing I've learned as a Vice Chancellor is that you have to sit there and basically be prepared to let people call you a wanker and say, this is terrible, Vice Chancellor, how could you do this? And so the difference between me and my predecessors, I have to tell you a little story about my first day in the office. My first day in the office, I go into the office, I sit behind this desk, I've never been behind such a big desk in my life. And is that the one that Peter used to sit Exactly, it's the our, one that Our old Peter... friend Peter Boyce, who would disappear behind the desk, yes. actually. You could barely see it. Anyway, I sit behind it and I look under the desk and there's this little green button. And the button. My, new, my new PA, my new PA says, I look at her and say, what's this? And she says, she's wonderful, which is, oh, don't touch that. But of course, like all little boys, when you see a knob, you're going to poke it. So I, so I press this little green button. The door slams shut, and the security guards arrive. Oh my god! So the first, the first, it's the panic room. It is the panic room. So the first, the first thing I do, and it's amazing how symbolic little gestures can be on the university. First thing I did was get rid of that. The second thing that happened on my first day, I went down to the human resources department and I pulled the door and it was locked. And I said, how do I get in? And the woman sitting on the desk said, you don't, who are you? So I looked at her and said, oh, maybe this will work. And I took my new card and I swiped my card and the door opened. And she said, you don't work in HR. There's only one person who... Oh, my God. (laughs) Anyway, I had the doors unlocked on the campus. And within 24 hours, the signal that that sent was bizarre. Uh, And the second thing that I did on my second day was I walked across to what's called Club Mud or Club Med. It's the coffee shop. And I walked across and I bought my own coffee and I stood in a queue and... I kept looking and touching to make sure my flies weren't open, because everybody was looking. And so, in a small institution, those things are really important. So, part of the problem is that myself and the three DVCs get on so well, we go and have coffee every morning in in the university club, and we sit there laughing and joking, and that's a problem. Because people worry when they see the Deputy Vice-Chancellors and the Vice-Chancellor laughing. They think, my God, are we in for it? Something gone wrong. 
And so part of the problem is beginning to re-socialise the university into understanding that they really can say to the Vice-Chancellor, Vice-Chancellor, I don't like this, or Richard, I don't like this, this is crap. And I will say, well, we'll see what we can do, or there's nothing we can do, or there are good reasons for why we but do this. But let's talk about this. But let's... let's talk about now, let me change the direction of the conversation a wee bit, if I could, but not completely. Going back to something you said earlier, Richard, where you mentioned being a political economist, if I go back, 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 baseball commentary with balls almost swirling out of the park there's an outfielder trying to catch the fly ball. And I remember when we first met, uh, we had a mutual interest. You were very distinguished in this field. I was nobody. Not quite. Not quite. Get in there, I hope. Uh, the field of uh, dependency theory, corporate relations, whatever term we use for it, the leftist term in international relations, international politics, described by the dependistas in Latin America, people like Cardoso went on to yeah. become not quite a vice-chancellor of Murdoch, a president, just president of Brazil, by political scientists like Emmanuel uh, Wallerstein, uh, by, by folks such as yourself. This was very radical alternative to trying to explain the way in which capitalist investment or status development had failed in much of the world. And it remains a very powerful critique. But you're always somewhat critical of that. And I'm interested in what you think of that dependency theory idea today, what you think of development studies today. You're smiling as if you're putting on your unvice chancellor hat. I no. just turn green knobs on and off. I don't think about this anymore. But I know you do because you continue to write and edit books and articles on this topic. So, for those of us who are still mired like myself, in mired is not. I don't want. I like. I don't like to think of professors, professors thinking they're mired in. No. For those of us who still miss the Cold War, a certain level. For those of us who still think Marxism gives lots of keys that are valuable. But in part because we're interested in material relations rather than theoretical fantasies. Tell us about okay. dependency theory as you see it today and whether and how your intellectual trajectory has changed to take you from being a lecturer in, I think, Tasmania when we first met. My first job. Which seems to disappear from the CV, by the way. No, it's not. Well, really? Okay. I hope well, so. The, the abbreviated versions I've seen. Oh, I wouldn't that do little that. island state has somehow rather oh, that's not terrible. been given its due. I will go and check, and if it's gone, I will reinstate I it. Reinstate. <laughs> but anyway, from being the sort of uh, bad boy, you know, working class Midlands Britain Marxist with the moustache and the Cuban Tasmania, heels. <laughs> right, to being president of a university. And still very important in the field of development studies. Not development economy. studies, but well, still in political economy, sorry, maybe. Political economy. Yeah. But no doubt with effect in development studies. Okay. I mean, it's it's a big question. It is a big question, and we can we can. I think a lot of what I did when I was a young lecturer, when I knew you, some of it stood the test of time. Some of it hasn't. 
and you're going to cop a serve in a minute as well. I think it's people like you that are part of the problem, not part of the solution, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Um, political economy was important. And the reason political economy was important, and the reason the dependistas were in, important, was because they never made this arbitrary distinction between politics and economics, between states and markets. Where the dependistas got it wrong was with their what we call the development of underdevelopment hypothesis. And the big thing that did it for me in explaining where that was wrong was that wonderful expression of Joan Robinson's that if there's one thing worse than being exploited by capital, it's, it's not, not being exploited by capital. John Robinson, the kind of Cambridge economist of yeah. the Cambridge economists, two of the last holdouts yeah. in the UK. But anyway, um, the important thing was the relationship between states and markets, and that's where political economy was crucial. And if you look at the contemporary global financial crises, uh, I think that one of the reasons that we had a global financial crisis, and this is a minor element of it, we used to talk about the trésor des clerks. I like to think of the treason of the political scientists um, as a political scientist by training, but a political economy by inclination. Uh, what, what we saw over the last 20 years was the political scientists, the philosophers and the lawyers vacate the playing fields to the economists. And this wasn't just some high abstract theory, this had very long policy shadows that it cast. So the economists became the intellectual handmaiden of what you might call the global financial system. And we need to distinguish when we talk about the global economy between what we might call the liberalisation of global trade, which I still think benefits everybody, uh, and the deregulation of global finance, which I think benefits some people but not others. About 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 point five percent of the but the point the point about this is that where my my community uh, created sins of omission as opposed to the economists' sins of commission was that they didn't provide the regulators with the intellectual armaments that the economists provided the financial sector with the efficient market hypothesis. So we had an asymmetry in the relationship between the, the two competing sides of the big debate about state and society, about markets uh, and politics. And what everyone forgets about Adam Smith, for example, uh, is that he not only wrote uh, The Wealth of Nations, he also wrote The Theory of Moral Sentiments as well. No, he was a proper political that's right. That's right. He was a political philosopher as much as anything else. So, I think that where I stand intellectually, and I've come to, to you and your lot in a minute, where I stand intellectually is that uh, what we are, the position we're in in the early 21st century is that if the multidisciplinary political economists can get it right, they can recalibrate the agenda that basically argues that those traditional Laswellian questions of politics, who gets what, how, when, where, remain as important and normatively determined as 
what we might call the theorising of the economist. Where I think political scientists and the international political economy people lost their way was that they went for what I would call a critical discourse uh, that emerged more out of literary theory and cultural studies than it did out of political science, economics and international relations. So we, were un we had unleashed on us these, these scholars of international relations who knew all about Derrida and uh, Lacan and Levinas and bugger all about the way the world works. And I have to tell you, <laughs> <laughs> Professor Toby Miller, eminent scholar of cultural studies, that it's time, I haven't read your book yet, I have to say, Burn the Humanities, but I'm kind of hoping that part of what you're saying in that uh, picks up this kind of theme about the need to, and don't misunderstand me, I don't, I don't deride the immense intellectual contribution and intelligence of these kinds of, of scholars. Wankers. No, scholars. No, but it's, it's render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. I have a friend, Richard Devertak. You may know Richard Devertak. He's a distinguished scholar of international relations at the University of Queensland. Uh, he did a PhD in international relations with a guy called Andrew Ling later. Oh yes, whose work I know, but whom I don't know. And he became very interested in discourse analysis, critical theory, and Derrida. And one day he went to Paris and stood with his friend outside Derrida's office and had his photograph taken. He was a PhD student at the time. And lo and behold, Derrida came out the door. And he said, what are you doing? And he said, ah, we're great admirers of your work. And uh, Derrida said, oh, that's very nice, I'm very flattered. What do you do? I'm doing a PhD in international relations. Derrida said, why? Why are you interested in my work? I'm a literary critic. I'm a literary theorist. Derrida could not understand the translation of his... Now, don't misunderstand this. This sounds like I'm some kind of old reactionary who doesn't, who doesn't like the younger generation to explore. Who doesn't like the, under gener the, the, the younger generation uh, to move the boundaries. And Toby will tell you all about moving the boundaries in a minute, dear listener. Um, but what I'm saying is that we need to think hard when we think about issues as big and as important as development, the global financial crisis, what's useful to us uh, and what's not useful to us. And some discursive analysis is indeed extremely useful to us. But my old mentor, who's dead now, uh, and you may have known through your your dad, Susan Strange. Of course, Susan. Yeah, Susan, you. Susan, and I admire her work. Uh, look, I spent the last six years of Susan's life as a colleague, and uh, it was it was so important. But Susan couldn't get her head round how you could say, "I'm a political economist," but you didn't know how a market cleared or how a general equilibrium model worked. And that wasn't because she was interested in econometric rigorous rubbish. It was because she knew that you needed to understand the relationship between states and markets. And a lot of what we were turning out as political economists knew a bit of Gramsci, a bit of Levinas, a bit of Derrida, but couldn't tell you anything about the way the markets were. Hey Dave. Hello mate, how are you? Um, Good to see you. Yes, yeah, nice do, to you do you two recognise each other after all this? More or less. I think I had, I probably had a little more peroxide in my hair. 
You had two earrings in the last picture I saw of you. I've got, still got two earrings. I can't, my eyesight is so bad. Yeah, no, that's what happens to Vice Chancellors. <laughs> or Deputy Vice Chancellor. Yeah. No, no, no. It's not half past seven yet. Anyway, let's keep going. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 you come and sit down. Join us. You come and sit down. This is part of Toby's modus, modus operandi for these things. Sorry, that I just sit down Sorry, that was a bit of a rant. No, not at all. You were shocked by that. No, 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 not at all. I think it's. I think the point is well taken. I guess I'm thinking of a couple of counterexamples um, of people who might be in your bad books, like James Dadarian. No, but who actually like did eth proper ethnographies of things like how weapon systems operate. He's not in my bad books, I'll tell you what. But is a derogatory. Because he didn't pontificate on the relationship between states and markets. He knew exactly what he right, was doing. Right. No, we're, we're, what we're, what we're doing... Because we started the conversation about dependista theory yeah. and political yeah. economy. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I'm... No, no. Similarly, Alex went. Uh, David Campbell. Remember David Campbell? Very excellent. I've never met him. But great work. Former student of mine, Jim George. Jim George, whom I of course knew well. Fantastic. Both wonderful writers. What we've been doing, David, this is um, David Morrison, who is one of the gang of four that Richard <laughs> was referring to earlier, who is a very distinguished psychologist whom I knew 35,001 years ago in the pub in Fremantle. Mm -hmm. And is one of these deputy vice chancellors, which Richard spoke. We've been talking about Murdoch a lot. We've just moved on to how the old boys veered away from being a proper leftist to being a, a I'm member still of a professional, proper leftist. professional managerial class. Ah, he doesn't want to admit it. So, so the ones anyway. who stopped to be the proper leftists were the ones who went up the fundamentals of discourse. But let me ask you something here. We're just chatting about the way in which neoclassical economists, econometricians and so on, became so dominant and so successful in the general debate over the relationship between states and markets, questions of distribution and so forth. And Richard's saying that he thinks one of the failings of the intellectual left in the social sciences was not to provide an alternative to that as a consequence of, if you like, a turn to distance. So they became weak. Well, my account to that would be that if they hadn't done that, they still wouldn't have been listened to. Because look at all the hard heads in political economy who didn't change. What was needed and what was granted to capital by the turn to neoclassical economics was a legitimation for the redistribution of income back upwards from the working class that it achieved much redistribution through the democratic process in social democracies to the ruling class. So it wouldn't have mattered how rigorous or otherwise you've been. Thank you very much. Nothing would have changed anyway. These people had the right language. Now, what's happened in the last four or five years, and actually psychologists... The turn to behavioural economics. Yes. Yeah. They now think that the real activities of people and the actual ways people feel and think about things matter, as opposed to their idealised notions. Yeah? 
and so they are turning to psychologists. But the reason they they still don't want to talk to anthropologists or historians. The reason they go towards psychology. they want to talk to psychologists. Right? The reason that, the reason they've gone to psychology and behavioural economics is because they think that psychologists are scientists, like economists are scientists, and that political philosophers, uh, lawyers, legal theorists, political scientists are not. Because, as Professor Morrison says, to annoy me at times, if you can't count it, it's not worth anything. No. No, 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 no. I don't say that. If you can't measure it, it doesn't exist. <laughs> now, That's even worse. I, I need to take a piss. I want you guys to talk about that a bit more while I just shake. No, we're going to talk about you while you're gone. Not just best friend. No, seriously, that's an interesting epistemological question. You can't tell. He doesn't know what epistemology is. He's he a psychologist. No, seriously, the measurement issue interests me because one of the things that econometricians were able to say was we're measuring, even though they weren't, they were fantasizing and. Uh, creating formula. I'd love to know, can you say something into this little toy here? You don't have to move from your current position. Just speak to really. Yeah, I think you misunderstand. A lot of, a lot of the, the contemporary... Can I go to the loo, please? Can you have this no, conversation no, like I told you? One sentence. Come on, write it. A, a, a lot of, a My lot prostate of, speaking... No, no, you'll be fine. Yeah. You're a young boy. You're a young boy. A lot of the economists are actually not interested in data. Well, they're, that's also true. They're actually interested in the mathematics. Uh, of it. So, that's elegance, though, isn't it? Yeah. Go on. Well, this is a, this is a big issue in the United States, where uh, in a number of economics departments, they can't actually admit U.S. students to the graduate degrees because their math isn't up to it. Well, they can only say... admit Asian students. U.S. students simply don't have the math. I hope this gets out into the world. I always say that the reason that Warwick has one of the best economics departments in Britain is because it's full of people who couldn't get jobs in mathematics departments. <laughs> right, now... On that note... So the kind of measure it doesn't exist. So, so they're failed mathematicians. You're starting at 10. That's a failed mathematician. This is a very interesting exercise. What he does is he, is he, is he blogs this. And the... You will get blamed for what you're No, the idea is that it, it's done in the verite. So it's done in a bomb. Someone comes in and orders a drink. Uh, you can hear the buses going by outside. But let's go back. Let's just treat his question seriously for, for a minute. Where do we get that relationship between the normative value-driven political philosophy and the empirical, analytical, behavioural science and economics? But you don't accept all research as science. You don't accept what they do in arts and education and philosophy as science. Um, but if you're a normative philosopher, 
and you want to make a point about the importance of justice in an unequal, asymmetrical world. And it doesn't lend itself to modelling. Some people would say it does lend itself. Yeah. One example, one example of a measurement there would be the Gini coefficient on inequality, for example. No, oh, it's a it's a it's a, a correlation of of equality, where one is um, the most unequal position you can get, and zero um, is total equality. Or it could be the other way around. One is total equality and zero is... Well, that, that, that could be... Yeah, that could be an example of where a debate about inequality, which is a, a normative philosophical issue, can be, if you like, measured. You're talking about the Gini coefficients. Gini coefficients, very important things. Um, did you explain what they are? Well, I didn't know. I, I know what they are now. Right. So what I mean is, it's um, Dave. The podcast has people listening in fifty different countries, right. with lots of different intellectual backgrounds. Yeah. You know, so um, you anyway. You explain what it. Well, we what, did. What, yeah. It's okay. Yeah, we did. And the, and, the, and the reason why it's important to be able to measure it in, in some way, it might be imperfect, but at least it will be a way of somebody being able to replicate what it is that you've got. I don't and think and that's really important for building, for building on something. Yeah, I don't. I don't think you'll find anyone, apart from a few died in the war, Levinas, discursive theorists. Will he's he's looking at me when he says no, that. No, no. Toby, you've had a wonderful career. I've watched <laughs> it. I've enjoyed it. You've been fantastic. Um, once you worked out what you wanted to do. I have to say, by the way, the piece in the Times, Higher Education, I enjoyed it. I could read between the lines in it, because I know a bit about it. But I'm curious to know what kind of feedback you got from it. I've seen it. I turned into an onion. Times, Higher Education magazine, last week had a picture of an onion I saw it. I saw. I saw it today, actually. That was. That's me. Yeah. Mixed. I would say. How many people are irritated by it? Because I've got colleagues who are irritated by it. Because I've told them. That's okay. He got a reaction. Yeah. Have no reaction at all, right? <laughs> it sounds like a very sort of Oscar Wilde moment. I mean, I know, I liked it. I liked it, and I thought... You've got colleagues who are rooting. Yeah. Well, I've received uh, one piece of feedback from a friend whom I deeply admire uh, that is deeply, it's profoundly condemnatory in terms of responses to the, those in irritation. Uh, I've received quite a lot of very positive responses from people I don't know, uh, all of whom are in the global south slash third world, 
Let uh, me tell you why I like say it. this inspires me to think that because it's about Dave having a meandering yeah. trajectory yeah. instead of a teleological discontinuous discontinuous career. Exactly. Yeah. The reason I liked him was because what it says is that you don't have to go first degree, second degree, third degree in Ivy League, Red Brick, or Oxford, preferably Oxford and Cambridge, or Sydney and Melbourne universities, in order to finish up with a successful academic career. And there's a there's a lot of really interesting work being done at the moment on what's called first in family, low socioeconomic status students, and how they become academics. And um, Oh, I'm not going to interrupt. No, 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 no you're, you're not. You're not. Nice to I think we met before. I got a thing we have to. Oh, we have. Yeah, and we should have met anyway. Yeah. British Academy? No, I, I, I might have been holding I might have been holding Medora or sweeping. No, no, no. She's one of the people who raised her eyebrows at your presentation, at your piece of the Times. Have you hated it too? No. No, she didn't hate it. I didn't say that. Don't let him tell you stories. I didn't say that. I, I've let him tell me stories for 32 years. I can't stop letting him know. Now, we are recording this podcast, so would you tell us your last name? It's uh, Bigot Punt. Bigot Punt. How do you spell that? It's B-R-A-N-D-T as in Willie. As, as in Willie. As in Bigot <laughs> Sorry. No jo all jokes aside. <laughs> Actually one of my heroes. Yeah, I can I can see that. Uh, wasn't big, it wasn't one of my heroes when I was younger, but I think you made a big difference. Why was he not one of your heroes? Well, you know, I guess you, you come, at, you, you are at a certain age, and you think any politician of a certain establishment party is not necessarily your cup of tea. I know um, what you mean. I just liked him because he was on the left. He was awkward and tough, and he stood up uh, against right-wing madness, I thought. And he'd been a strong proponent of political democracy at the time he wasn't fashionable. This is where contextual analysis is really important. We're determined by who we're against as much as... What we're for. Yeah. Uh, who are our enemies is as much a signifier of our work as who are our friends. See, he says signifier because I'm here. That's one that noted. Because he knows it's <laughs> the currency of the realm. No, but to be serious, so Vinnie Brandt was too far to the right for... Oh, no. I think, look, I mean, I, I think it's not necessarily where he was, where I was, you know, it's not a, it's not an objective observation, it was just a... Were you a dangerous lefty when you were younger, first? I was on the anarchist side of things. Uh, <laughs> Which, now does that... You weren't a member of Bader Meinhof, you're too young No, I'm a bit young for that, but, <laughs> does that... but thank you very much for Does the that thought. become the Greens? <laughs> yeah. Does the anarchist movement become the We're part of it, I, I'm part of it. So Joschka Fischer was a hero? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not a hero. Joschka Fischer is... Uh, well, you talk to some people in the Green Party. You know, Elmer. Huh? Elmer. Outvater. Elmer. Yeah, exactly. But Elmer would have, Elmer would have been cautious vis-à-vis Joschka Fischer, I would assume. They used to drink together. Yeah. That doesn't mean anything. Yes, it does. 
Well, it does with us. I think drinking together is a very important bonding experience. Yeah, litre hands. What about, okay, so you and No, it's fine. Look, don't you worry. I mean, this is, anyway, I, I think Willy Brandt is a, you know, is a good historical figure and did more things good to Germany than, uh, than many that followed him. I guess I just think of him in contrast to Adenauer. Yeah, of course. Uh, Absolutely. As being more on the left, more of a good time kind of guy. Good uh, time. Good. They, they didn't name no. a stiftung after Brandt, did they? It's the Ebert Stiftung, the SPDs. It's not the Brand Stiftung, it's the Ebert Stiftung. Do you know about the Stiftungs in Germany? No, nothing. Sorry. Quick. Yeah. For, um, for 50 different countries, tell them about the Stiftung. 50 different countries are listening in. Fantastic. Or um, yeah. All, all political parties will have their aligned foundations where they invest monies into either individuals and or programs and or political debate, um, sort of intellectual capacity uh, to prop up the party, to, to help the parties thinking. So the, um, and the SPD's main foundation is the Friedrich Ebert Foundation. And I think the Butler Foundation, which is aligned with the trade unions. Neumann? The Neumann. Neumann Foundation. It's liberal. That's liberal democracy. But what they do, Toby, is they provide funds for conferences and workshops around the world. I wanted a drink. I didn't this, want to Excuse me. Oh, they'll come. They'll come. Oh, they'll come. They'll come. Yeah. They'll come. Moment. I'm he's glad you came, Berger, because I was getting interrogated. He's, he's so frightened by the pre-eight nine. Like Could I have a house red wine? But this is a Merlot. It's good. That's good. Yeah. Okay. We'll have one, too. I, I, actually, I'm all right. I'm, I'll have I'm, one. I'm ahead of you. How long have you been here? I got here super early before the vice chancellor took off his robes, as it were. By the way, have you noticed that, that, that they use they use the word vice chancellor in a sneering way? Well, you they could say that the, the, the Baldwin and him have got something in common. That then. would be even worse. Than I have to tell you a lovely stuff. Can we switch this off now? Why um, are you doing this for what? This is a program. No, uh, I run a podcast on iTunes, Android, iPhone, and on the web. When interesting people into my orbit, I like to try to get them to speak to me. Have you had enough, Richard? Well, no. It's just I was I was going to tell you something that probably shouldn't go out on. On this, all right. Well, before you tell us that, is there anything else we should be chatting about? No, I, 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 you said your bit about international political economy and the roots less taken. You haven't replied. You haven't. I, can we just finish you haven't this? rebutted it. Five minutes on this. You rebutted it. No, no, I in a sense I did. My argument would be that I thought I'd the neoclassical neoliberal school gave international ruling class stronger or weaker political existence. The tools it needed to do what it wanted to do. And the work I've done on the Washington Consensus. And an alternative to that may have been listened to in a few seminar spaces, but would it actually have been listened to by public policy hegemons, corporate capitalists? That's the interesting question. I belong to a thing called the Evian Group, which is a kind of a, a ginger group for free trade. And I do need to distinguish between free trade, deregulation, <laughs> <laughs> financial markets. Of course, you know, any, any Trotskyist position is going to be, no, for example, pro-free trade. 
I'm not a trust oh, but I'm pro-free trade. I'm very opposed to deregulation of all kinds of economy. Yeah, I just want there to be a rule of free trade in labour. Ah, well. If we, if, you know, and without that, if we do a I don't want any free trade. If we, if we do a globalisation 101, then what have we seen in the last 60 years? We've seen uh, the deregulation of uh, finance, the privatisation of assets, and the liberalisation of trade. The one thing that is less mobile we, we in the 21st we century we got these, uh, than it was at the beginning of the 20th century is people. Well, I mean, I think get about a million you and I, you, well, you were born in Australia. I was born here. You were born here, but you're, you're in Australia. Less than you are, I think. Uh, no, no, no. very, very no. good. And in the end, we I went exactly to Australia. The United States is a migrant settler society. Um, all the interesting societies in the world are very often settler societies. And to the extent, I mean, if Australia, this is, this is a really bizarre thing to say, if Australia could double its population overnight, and, and the, 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 the Anglo-Saxon community became a minority community, I don't see that that would be a diamond I mean, the whole kind of, but it's still thought of politically, as a disaster by the, by the ruling parties, whether it's the Liberal Party or the, or the Labour Party. You know, they are not capable of getting to grips with the idea that they're extremely lucky to have this very large chunk of land for a very small group of people. There's this iconic all this stuff with no water where we can collaborate. But all this other stuff that everybody else no, needs. No water is not a problem. You can create water. You can de My university has uh, a world-leading research centre on desalination, i.e., how you get salt out of water and how you purify it. We can do that. We have the technology to do that. That's not a problem. Water will not be a fundamental problem for Australia in the next hundred years. Now, there will be unpleasant things. You know, the Murray will dry up every now and then, and, uh, and that's not very good if you live in Old Rewadonga or somewhere like that. Yeah. But I agree with you. 100% that there is a fundamental disconnect between our understanding of the mobility of labour and our understanding of the mobility of capital. If you think about the first industrial revolution, it was people moving to where the work was. And then what happened with the new, the new international division of labour? It was capital moving to where people were. And the barriers came up. And that's well not. I mean, and I live in I live in in, in, in what I consider to be one of the most interesting parts of the world. That is in Southeast Asia. I think of myself as living in Australia. Everyone says, "Oh, you live in Australia." I go to Singapore three times as many times in a year as I go to Canberra. Uh, I have 6,000 We have 6,000 students flying up all with them. We have students in Malaysia. But uh, but what about, I mean, this is not counter to that. We've got a very soft underbelly. So we, You're on the... We, 
in a sense. The Indian game. Ocean. Mm. Like everybody, every, everybody was gaming it. You're very we close to um, other parts of the world uh, that so are not so, quite so sexy Africa, in terms of international mm. political economy, particularly Africa, which of course is where you began the world. And where was a place to be very important for international political economy historically. Okay, well, one of the big pushes in our research agenda is in Africa. And, and, and about, probably about half of our research. When you become a vice chancellor, you can't just be interested in what you're interested in. So, so most of my time is not spent so with the things that we've been talking about. So we didn't meet threshold. It's spent with the vets, the four life sciences, and you need to, biomedical you know, you sciences. And we have this man that's where the maximum returns were who is probably the world's leading expert on rhizobium and grains. And well, his research making grains sturdy is feeding 600,000 better. There's really wonderful things that if you get a school of veterinary and life sciences in a place like Western Australia, harsh, arid climate, you know, leading edge research, we can't, we can't get enough funds to develop what we're doing in the African context. We will, and he's working on that. That's uh, a job. My deputy vice chancellor for research is what I do. But it's a really important... I guess that's just the point I want to make in Western Australia. The Particularly in the southern part where Murdoch is. It's all very well to say we're part of Southeast Asia. You're actually very close to another very important economy that isn't going to pay white Australians lots of money. No, it doesn't need to. It's not in the immediate future. But it's tremendously important in world history and And that is something that the totality of a university experience is about science, but it's also about culture. And some universities have got so rigid and um, siloed you know, that you don't get than a, that kind you know, of a memorandum of understanding. For Toby's listeners, no, Toby started this seven three men in the dog in Stockholm. In I'm sure it's probably slightly bigger than that. Toby started this very interesting seminar series called Moving the Boundaries. We did it in a pub. It was basically an excuse to go out and have a few drinks in the school. But it actually it dealt with important questions about how various disciplines in universities talk to each other. Now that was largely social sciences and humanities, but in smaller universities, because you can actually, I mean, we're, we're creating a new graduate school public policy. We had more PhDs. The scientists are as important in this as the social scientists, because what are, what are our primary areas of policy? Biosecurity, food security, animal welfare, estuarine health. Estuarine health is sound. Sounds like something with an accent and it's the way we did our business. It's not. It's to do with how communities around estuaries survive and live and prosper. And if you ask the question, how many people live in the Mekong Delta? Which is basically a big Incredibly well trained. We started 100 million. So it's not just estuarine health. 
isn't just about dolphins in the Swan River. And true, it's true that every dolphin in the Swan River is a postdoctoral research fellow. They've got a one-to-one relationship. But they've got to really want the one. The dolphins have got to want the one. Richard, I want to thank you very much for this. I hope that the project uh, so you're undertaking at Murdoch it keeps was going and going right? and going like an energizer battery. Yeah, and I think it will, and I think you'll transform a huge profit. And I think you'll both allow it to be what it was when we were there all those years ago, but also something more. But I want to extract a promise from you, which is that at some point when the project is further developed, you'll come back into the pond and share with the group more of your insights, well, in particular, tell us about why you appointed Froebel, Heinrichs and Fry as your next set of Deputy Vice-Chancellors, <laughs> so that ideas of the New International Division of Labour, they were the three authors of this classic book from the late I think they're still alive. They, with Perry Anderson, they wrote an article in seven in an anthropology journal. But other than that, I never hear anything about them. It's like they did this one big book and they shot their hot love load, and that was all they could really offer. That's a very nice right. way of describing it. So. It is indeed. So, Richard Higgett, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with us as the only human university president known to man. Not true. Not true. There must be at least one more. <laughs>